and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Last week we looked at a story in Luke 15 about a family situation. We saw a father and his two sons. We saw a, a younger son who took his inheritance. And both of these sons grew up just assuming that what had been freely given to them was what they were entitled to. And, and they, one of them stayed at home and managed his father's business, and the other took his share of what he was to inherit, and he left to handle his life on his own and to go fill his own destiny. And, of course, it's the story of the prodigal son, and we saw how he what the end that he came to, that he ran out of his own resources, he ran out of his own determination, he ran out of what he could do in himself, and the very thing he went out to prove is exactly what he did prove. He went out to prove what he could make of himself, and he proved what he could make of himself, which is he ended up living in a pigsty, jealous of the food the pigs were eating. We realized it was not just a nice story from the Bible, but it's our story also, because we were given something by God that we did not earn, and that's our life. We cannot create life. We were given these bodies. We were given this time on the earth. We were given this opportunity as a free gift from God, and we all took it into our own hands to build our own lives and make our own way and prove ourselves. And whether you've realized it or not yet, whether you came to that place or not yet, where you were headed to was the pigsty, jealous, of what the pigs were eating. Some of you found yourself in a place in life which was like a pigsty. Others of us, we didn't get there, but we were headed there. And we may have been in a pigsty and not known it. My pigsty had three-piece suits, nice leather briefcases, beautiful view of Boston Harbor, because I was a very successful lawyer in a large firm in Boston, living among people, men and women that were very successful and had everything outwardly that the world says marks success. And I shared with you last year, last week, how broken many of them were, how lonely many of them were, how devastated their families were. They were living in expensive pigsties, jealous of expensive slop, but it was still a pigsty, and it was still a slop. We saw that the father's heart, the moment that boy was ready to come home, the moment that boy started home, the father was out looking for him. We saw that that represented God as our father, the heart of the father who loves us so much that he doesn't care about decorum, he doesn't care about what people think. He loves you so much that whatever it takes to redeem your life and bring you back to him is what he gave. And the Bible says he loved you so much that he gave his only son's life in your place. Then we saw that there was the older brother who did everything right. He was a good doobie. He did everything his father demanded. He did everything his father required. He did everything. And the problem was he was so still, he was in the same place his younger brother was. He just didn't know it because he was living his own life to prove himself with what his father had given to him freely. And so the, the evidence of it was when the father brought the young man back, the younger brother, and forgave him and threw a party for him, the older brother got angry and upset because the younger brother didn't get what he was entitled to because he thought his younger brother was entitled to be banished because he'd taken the opportunity he'd been given and he'd wasted it. The irony is, is the older brother was more lost than the younger brother because of his righteousness and his goodness and the way he lived his life. He couldn't see that he was just as off as his younger brother was 
because he was in he was bound by his own righteousness he was bound by making his own way and he couldn't see that because he was doing everything which in his eyes made him right and such were some of you and the danger is we can still be in that place we began by looking at the beginning of that chapter Luke 15 and we saw this interesting thing which is challenging us today which is it says Jesus the sinners and the publicans, the tax collectors, loved to be with Jesus, and they came to him to hear what he had to say. And the Pharisees and the, 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 the pastors and the religious people of their day got offended at that by saying, don't you realize what kind of people they are, Jesus? You shouldn't be associating with them. But isn't it interesting? The people that were lost and knew they were lost clung to him. And the Pharisees, which were just as lost, didn't realize they were lost. And so they judged him and the people that came to him. And that can be a picture of where we are as a church. And the question is, do the sinners and the tax collectors and the publicans come near us to hear what we have to say? Or do they feel that they would be rejected and that they stay away because we have such a holiness and a righteousness about ourselves that they don't feel comfortable coming to us? Isn't it interesting? Jesus was infinitely more righteous than any of the Pharisees were, and yet they were comfortable coming to him. And the question is, are they comfortable coming to us? Are they comfortable coming here? If the, if the dirty and the downtrodden and the, and the people coming with the pig slop on them we're coming in today, how would we feel? Would we greet them as as we would greet our brother or sister? Would we greet them and love them and create? Because you see, in order for people to hear what you have to say, they've got to know that you care. You have to earn the right to speak into someone's life. Jesus cared about people, and therefore he could, they wanted to hear what he had to say. But when we try to tell them what we want them to know because we judge where they are, they're not going to hear what we have to say. And you and I didn't either. So we're going to look at this from a little different angle today. We're over now in Luke chapter 9. Another story of Jesus relating to people. But this is a different person today. Chapter 19, Luke 19. Then Jesus entered... What did I tell you before? What? Yeah, that's where we were last week. 19. I was never good at math. (laughs) Luke 19. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector... And he was rich. We talked last week about the tax collectors and why they were so hated. Because they were Jews who had gone to work for the Roman government that was oppressing them. And the Roman government, of course, needed, they collected taxes in order to pay for what they, their, their existence there. And, of course, Caesar got most of it. And so what they did, the Romans were very smart. They knew that if they put their own people in there as tax collectors, that they would, they would probably get killed. So what they did is they chose Jews, and they, they made a deal with the Jew that if you, you collect the taxes for us, this is what we require, and anything you collect over that you can keep. So they made their living 
by collecting whatever they could gouge out of their own people. So as a result, they were hated very much by the Jews. They were despised. They were considered as if they were Gentiles because, first of all, they'd sold out to the Roman government. And secondly, they were stealing from their own people. And Zacchaeus was the chief of them. Zacchaeus lived in one of the better houses. Zacchaeus wore the best clothes. Even though he was a Jew, he was an overseer over that whole area, most likely, overseeing the other tax collectors, so he was getting his cut or their cut. And he was very wealthy. And he's despised by the people, undoubtedly, because of his wealth and because of his position and because what he was in charge of and what it was doing to them. And so that's who Zacchaeus is. He was the chief tax collector, and he was very rich. Last week we looked at Jesus coming to those that are down and out. We're going to look at a man who was literally up and in. All right. Verse 3. And he sought to see who Jesus was. So he was curious. It's interesting how Jesus meets you where you are. But he could not see him because Jesus is coming into the city of Jericho. He couldn't see him because of the crowd for he was of short stature. He was short. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he, Jesus, was going to pass that way. Now notice what he does. He's got enough of a desire. He doesn't know much about him, but he's curious. He wants to see him. And when he gets there, the people are in his way. His own limitation keeps him from seeing Jesus. He's too short. He can't see over the crowd. But he doesn't allow his own limitation to stop him from what he wants to do. So he climbs up in a tree. So he can look down at the process of the procession of Jesus coming by. To do that, he had to humble himself. He had to climb up like a young boy into the tree, and they would have recognized who he was because of his robes. They would know who he was. He was the IRS agent, he was the regional IRS agent. They knew who he was. So he had to put his dignity aside and climb up in that tree. And he's, he's just there out of curiosity. But he's enough curious, he wants to see Jesus enough for himself. He's heard about him, but he wants to see him for himself. And the question to say is, have you seen him for yourself? Or have you just heard about him? Sometimes what keeps us from seeing him for ourselves is we're not willing to humble ourselves and climb up in the tree. We want to take our dignity with us to see him. He had to lay his dignity aside in order to see Jesus. Oh, but what a trade he made. Oh, but what a trade he made. Verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, and he saw him, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your home. Wow. All the people in the crowd, 
all the religious leaders following along in this procession, the people in Jericho that were believers and other people who would have longed to hear him say, I want to come and stay at your house. The Pharisees who would have loved to have Jesus come in their house. Why? Because then they could brag that, the, that, the, that this rabbi was in their house. And Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, hurry up, come down. Because today I want to stay in your house. Reminds me of a scripture where Jesus says, Behold, I knock at the door of your heart. If anyone will open the door, my Father and I will come in and dwell there. He's knocking at the door of your heart this morning, saying, Can I come in to stay in your house, to stay in your life? I've seen you. I've seen you climb that tree. I've seen you desire me. I've seen you want and you may not understand because Zacchaeus didn't understand it's just a desire I see the desire there can you come down humble yourself and come down because I want to come and stay in you I want to remain in you I want to dwell in you in your life well let's see what the Pharisees how they react to this so he made haste and came down and received him joyfully but when they Ever want to know who the they are? <laughs> yeah, well, you know what they're saying? Who are they? Well, in this case, we know who the they are. It's the Pharisees. It's the religious leaders. Those that are there to represent God to the people. And they don't realize that it's God among them. They don't see that he's God dwelling in the flesh. They don't see that because all they've got their eyes on is who they are and the attention and the position that they have. See, when your eyes are on you, it's hard to see him for who he is. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Now remember who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. This is God saying, I want to be in his house. And God's representatives are judging him for choosing to eat with whom he wants to eat instead of learning from it. See, religion is trying to make God do what we think he ought to do. And Christianity is when we've given ourselves over to him so that we do what he wants us to do instead of trying to get him to do what we think he ought to do. And they were upset. They complained that he would eat with a sinner like Zacchaeus. All right. Now let's look at Zacchaeus, verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusations, I restore fourfold. Something's happened to Zacchaeus. Something's happened to him that's changed him on the inside at his heart. Because now, instead of being told, notice Jesus isn't saying, in order to come to me, you've got to give half of your money away. A earlier on, just the chapter before, there was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus. 
and tries to justify himself by saying, you know, what do I have to do? I want to follow you. And Jesus said, here's what you've got to do. You've got to keep all the commands. Oh, I've done those since I was a youth. All right. Then here's the only thing that you lack is to take all this wealth that you have and give it to the, sell your stuff and give what you get to the poor and then come follow me. In other words, Jesus saw that in his life, something else was in his heart that was more important to him than following Jesus. And Jesus was trying to reach in there and identify that to get that set aside so that he could come and follow him. Zacchaeus has already set aside his dignity, has already set aside his position by climbing up on that tree, and Jesus has responded by coming. Jesus doesn't say, in order to follow me, you've got to give away every half of what you have. Zacchaeus wants to do it. It's not so that he can follow Jesus, because he has now had an encounter with the living Christ. It's changed him. So the desires of his heart are now lined up with the desire and will of Jesus. So you don't line your desires up so you can follow him. It's because you've seen him and had an encounter with him. It changes you. And I guess the question we need to ask ourselves is how much has our encounter with Christ changed us? How much has it changed us? It changed him. It changed the Apostle Paul 180 degrees. He was going to Damascus to kill the Jews, to kill the Christians, to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem to be tried and beaten and sent into prison and some of them executed. And now his whole life is turned around and he now goes to bring the gospel of this Christ he's been persecuting to the very people he was going to arrest. Changed him completely. Changed Moses when he had an encounter with God. Because it says in Hebrews that he eschewed, he gave up the riches and the pleasures of Egypt so that he could walk through the persecution and the struggling of his own people. He gave it up willingly, not because it was required of him. Religion tells you what you can't do, what you can't have, what you can't be. Christianity is an encounter with the living Christ. When you've had an encounter with the living Christ, it changes you. It changes you. It changes you. And as I read these verses and looked at some others, it challenges me. How much have I been changed by my relationship with Christ? Now, when you've walked with him for a number of years, you kind of lose sight sometimes of where you used to be. But that changing ought to be an ongoing process. Am I more changed this year than I... It's a good time of year to begin to think about these things. Am I different this year than I was last year? And if so, how? How is my relationship with him changed me. It changed Zacchaeus right away. So he wanted to give half of what he had to the poor. And then if he'd offended anybody, if he'd cheated anybody, he didn't just give it back to them, he gave it back to them fourfold. He didn't do that so that Christ would love him. He did that as a response to the love that he had just received. All right. So look, the, 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 the religious people are offended that he's with a sinner. Now, we talked last week, again, about the, the sinners that are down and out, that are living in the pigsty, that, that are come in, may come in here and, and they've got purple hair and tattoos and earrings and things like that, you know. What would we do if they came in here? But this challenges us. What do we do if the president and CEO of Textron comes in here? 
what if we do if, if some rock star gets saved and comes here and you happen to know who they are? What, what, you know, how would we handle someone like that? Would we say, wow, look who's here, my goodness, and give them preferential treatment? Would we do that? Or would we recognize that they need God's grace and mercy just as much as somebody coming from a pigsty? And I told you stories last year from my law firm in Boston and the people who had these beautiful offices and their families were a disaster. They'd lost their children, their families, they lost everything because in order to have that position and that income and that wealth that they had then, many of them lost it within a few years. I remember talking to the young man that had the office next to me, brilliant young lawyer, handsome, everything, you know, a degree from the top law school, and his wife was a beautiful, beautiful woman, bright and sharp and, you know, everything. And I remember asking me one day saying, you know, John, what is it that you're into now? It was a nice summery day. I said, I'll tell you what, let's go out and have lunch. Let's get a sandwich and go sit out on the government center there and I'll share it with you. He said, okay, great. So we get out there and I shared. It's not something I'm into. It's someone I've met. And I talked to him about Jesus. Now, he was Jew. But so were most of the lawyers that I work with. And so was Jesus, by the way. (laughs) And so was Mary. (laughs) So was Joseph. So was Peter, John. You know, they they were all Jews except Luke. And I was sharing with him and he looks at me. And he says, that's nice for you, but I really don't need that. And he, his life, he was successful. He's just been made a partner over me, and he was younger than I was. Beautiful wife, beautiful house, nothing but, nothing but future ahead of him. Well, I left that year to go to Bible school. When I came back the next year to visit, his wife had left him. He had been caught cheating on something and was kicked out about to be kicked out of the firm and everything turned very quickly and went south in his life I only had a chance to see him one other time and it was not a chance to, to bring him back to the conversation that we'd had unfortunately and so Jesus is showing us here that his compassion he comes not just for those that are down and out but he comes for those that are successful those that are caught in another pigsty, in another trap, and the most more dangerous one because it's not so obvious where they are. In Ephesians 3, Paul's prayer, it talks about that we being rooted and grounded in love would come to know together with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth and to know the love of Christ. What he's talking about there is we would come to know how far he'll go, how wide, what he'll, who he'll include, how high up in our, our social strata he'll go to reach, and how down low he'll go, because we often have limits on the love of God that's in our hearts. Sometimes that is so much that we won't even cross the street. We have a group of people that, I've heard this sometimes, and I've probably said it myself, boy, that person would make a great Christian. What's that mean? Like, this is a club? And we've just seen somebody who qualifies there? You know, what that means is, you know, we think 
we think, boy, if they were added to the church, what they could bring in. You know what qualifies you to be, become a Christian? Is you're a sinner. <laughs> Romans chapter 3. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you keep reading, and that's what qualifies us to receive His grace. Let's go on and see what this is all about. Verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today, now, salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. And this is what we were getting to, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. This is the time of year. This is Christmas. And there's, the Gospels have the traditional Christmas story. But the one that I've always has meant so much to me is the Christmas story that's in John chapter 1. You wouldn't read it and think automatically it's a Christmas story, but it is. It says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14 says, And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Wow. The son, the word, became flesh and dwelt among God gave his son to walk among us, to live among us, to take on flesh, to identify with us so that he could understand and relate to the struggles that we go through. We've talked about that before. It's in Hebrews chapter 4. It says he's, because he's a faithful high priest, he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, yet he doesn't sin. Therefore, he can be a faithful high priest. He understands what it's like to deal with weaknesses because he had to deal and struggle with his own flesh, but he never gave in. Where you and I have given in and failed, he never did, but he went through the struggle. And we see several of them in the, in the Gospels. We see in the, in the temptation in the wilderness, him dealing with it, but especially in the garden in that last night, struggling with his own will and eventually saying, not my will, but your will be done. And he did that for you and me. He did that for you and me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the word became flesh. And why did he dwell among us? Why didn't he just come and die? Why didn't he just come? If his goal was to come and die, and it was, that's the ultimate purpose for which he came, then why didn't he just come, grow up to 30 years of age, and go right to the cross? Why did he spend three plus years walking among us, living among us? Well, I know he was choosing disciples to get them ready to take over, but boy, they sure weren't very ready to take over when he left. Until they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they weren't. Why did he do this? Why did he come and dwell among us? Well, there are a lot of theories out there. There's some theory out there that Christ came and he lived among us as to be an example of how good people are supposed to live. He came to be a great moral teacher and teach us principles. It's interesting. Uh, even, even Karl Marx took some of those principles. Isn't that interesting? When you take a principle and you don't have the spirit of it, what you can do with it. In the beginning, even Adolf Hitler quoted some of those principles. So you can take a principle and use it for your own purposes. 
So the prevailing view of Christ out in the world, the prevailing view of Christ and other religions that recognize him is that he was a great prophet, is that he was a great example, he was a great moral teacher. And what they've done is they've taken the reason why God sent him and they've removed the heart of it and they've kept just the shell, the outside, what it looks like on the outside. Because the Bible tells us why he came. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to seek and save that which is lost. Seek means you go after, you find. We looked last week quickly at the parable of the woman that had lost the valuable coin and the shepherd that had lost the one sheep. What did they do? They went out looking for it. They removed everything that was in the way in order to find it. And God sent his son to this earth to seek and save the lost and to remove, first of all, the major thing, the thing that stood in the way, which is our sin. And he removed it by sending his son to that cross. But he's still seeking those who are lost now that the price has been paid. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. It's interesting, John 3.16, we know so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we stop there, but verse 17 says, for this, he came to the world not to judge the world, but he, that he might save those that were lost. Jesus did not walk around judging people. He did not walk around condemning. There's an ultimate judgment in that day we've talked about. And in that day, the judgment will be for those who receive Christ and those who didn't receive Christ. For those who receive Christ, they're judged on the basis of Christ. For those who didn't receive Christ, they're judged on the basis of their own righteousness. I would not want to stand before God in my own righteousness. Especially when He's the standard. His righteousness, His perfection. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Whether they were down and out or whether they were up and in. And the question we've got to come back to ourselves if he's the head of the body and we are the body of Christ, do we have that same purpose? Or is the head looking one way and the body trying to go another way? If the head, Christ is the head of the church, if the head's motive and heart is to seek and to save the lost, then the body's got to have the same motive and the same heart and the same purpose. Notice it wasn't a sidelight. It wasn't a hobby he had while he did what he wanted to do. His reason for living every day was to seek and to save the lost. And every day that meant something different and if you look in Matthew 9, if you read those events in there, Matthew 9, and Lafayette Scales, when he was here a few years ago, to a whole series and five messages and, and went around, five days and went around it. About, it, was, it, every, it was a one day in his life, and it was filled with interruptions of reaching the lost. Interruptions that changed his normal schedule, where he was headed, and he, he was willing to change his schedule, to change his plans, 
in order to seek and to save something or someone that was lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And if that's not the purpose for which the body of Christ exists, then we're unplugging ourselves from the head and trying to do something that the head wants to do, that the body wants to do something else. All right. Let's go look at some other things. Unless we have his heart... Well, let's go to Luke chapter 9. See, I knew we were going to get there. I just was ahead of myself. Luke chapter 9, we're going to go to verse 51. Oh, this is a great story. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem because he knows it's the time for him to give himself up to be crucified. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. He had a large crowd that followed him, and he was well known at that time. And so what he would do to prepare for when he came to a village, if he was going to stay there, is he would send disciples ahead of him to let them know he was coming and to prepare a place for him to stay, prepare food to eat for everybody, because he had this long entourage that was coming with him. And so this is a Samaritan village. Now remember, we've talked about this last year, or earlier this year when we spent so much time in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well, that the Jews hated the Samaritans, and of course, therefore, the Samaritans hated the Jews. It really was a racial thing, because the Samaritans were the people that were, they were half Jew and half Gentile. And so because in the Jews' eyes, they weren't pure Jew, they looked down on them as if they compromised. And the Gentiles, the, the Samaritans, of course, react by thinking the Jews are prejudiced, and they were. And so they developed their own place of worship, which was at Gerizim, which was the mountain that the woman at the issue well got into the debate with Jesus about, which is, well, you, we say on this mountain we're supposed to worship. You say in Jerusalem you're supposed to worship. So Jesus is coming into a village that hates Jews, and Jesus is a Jew. And so he comes into this village... Let's see what happens. He sent his disciples ahead to prepare for him. Verse 53. But, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, these are... Remember who John is? He's the apostle of love. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, which are all about love. He's the disciple that Jesus loved. He, of course, that's what he refers to himself as. In the Last Supper, he's the one with his head resting on Jesus' chest. Their name is James and John Bonagaris, which means sons of thunder. Verse 54, And when his disciples James and John saw that the people did not receive him, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Then the new King James says, Just as Elijah did? I mean, they've rejected you. They've offended you. 
Lord, can we call fire down on them? Burn them, fry them. They deserve that. I mean, they were zealous for him. They'd given up everything to follow him. And they're upset because people are rejecting him. They're offended at him. They don't recognize him for who they are. So they want, to, they want them to get what they deserve because they've not treated Jesus correctly. So they want to take the power, the authority that Jesus gave them earlier in this chapter. And they want to use that authority they've been given to call fire down on heaven and destroy them. So what they're, this is what they're doing. They're looking at this situation through their own understanding. And they're saying, this isn't right. The people have... Re- we know who He is. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one through whom this whole earth was created. The beginning of John says, and in Him was life, and the life was light of men. And our life came through Him. And he said, he came unto his own and they knew them not. These people are rejecting him. They're rejecting who he is. And boy, that's just wrong. So they deserve to be judged. We want to take the authority, the power we've been given, and we want to exercise it for what way, the way we think it ought to be exercised. Listen carefully. And let's see what Jesus says about that. Verse 55, instead of commending them and saying, yeah, go for it. But he turned and he rebuked them. They're sincere. They're upset. They're offended for him. Oh, this is a good place to stop for a moment. They're offended for him, but we're going to see he's not offended. Remember the trouble Eve got into? by trying to defend God when God never told her to defend Him? Just obey Him. That's when we begin to take things in our own hands and use our own religious judgment instead of just obeying. I'm sure they were were expecting Jesus to say, ah, yeah, go for it. And He rebuked them. He rebuked them even though they were sincere. Sincerity is nice, but it's not always right. You can be sincere in wrong. A lot of those people that knock on your door on Saturday morning are very sincere, but they're wrong. And you can be sincere and have a wrong heart. And that's dangerous. Because notice what he says. He turned and rebuked them, verse 55, and said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. Whoa. This is his disciples. And they're not doing this for themselves. They're doing it for the honor that they think he deserves. But Jesus is saying, you don't know what spirit you're of. In other words, your heart is entertained a wrong spirit. And this is where people fail to understand. You can do good things for God with the wrong spirit. 
and be completely off track. Read 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have, love, no, have not love, to God it's a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have all faith as to remove mountains, wow, I mean, perform miracles. That's what they were going to call fire down out of heaven. If I can do all these mighty deeds, these miracles, if I operate in the gifts of the Spirit powerfully and I do all these things, but I don't do it motivated by the love of God for those people, then in God's eyes, he said it's nothing. I've completely missed the mark. So in God's kingdom, in his eyes, your motivation for what you do is almost more important than what you do. And you, what makes it dangerous is you can be exactly right in what you see. They were right. They were being disrespectful to the Son of God. They were rejecting the opportunity that He was giving them. They were exactly right in their judgment of what was going on, in their analysis, but completely wrong in their motivation of what to do. And so often, we step out to get things right for God and do things right. Isn't it interesting? It's almost always what somebody else is doing wrong. And Jesus almost never says anything about what to do about somebody else is doing wrong, but he says a lot to do about what we're doing. If your right eye offends you, be merciless with it. Pluck it out. No, not literally. If your right hand's causing you trouble, cut it off. Wow. In other words, you need to be severe in treating yourself in this way when you're judging others. What you're really seeing is what's going on in you. That's when he talks about, you know, when you see the, the splinter in your brother's eye, don't try to remove that until you've pulled the plank out of yours. It dawned on me one day in meditating on that. What allows me to identify a little splinter in your eye? Because I can see what wood looks like because I'm looking right over the top of it in my own. And I found in my own life that the things that irritate me usually about other people, the reason it bothers me because they're getting away with something that in me I see. So I want to judge it in them because that will make me feel better. And what we're seeing here this morning is if we don't have the heart of God, if we don't have his motive, what he's looking for, then we're going to completely miss it. We may see great miracles happening. We may see fire coming down, but is it going to carry out the kingdom of God? These same disciples... Peter tried to talk him out of going to the cross. What if Peter succeeded? Peter said, this doesn't make sense. I mean, you know, we're, you're right at the point of accomplishing the, 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 what you came to do because he didn't understand what he came to do even though Jesus kept telling him. It didn't make sense that he came to die. It didn't make sense that he would come to die. That would be his purpose because they didn't understand what was behind it. Instead of trying to figure out what's right in God's eyes, let's get his heart first. Make sure we have his heart. This is why the ver 
Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> when, we're act- step- when we're acting in love, it'll cover all kinds of mistakes you make. Jesus said, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. You don't know what you've led in your spirit. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Let's go to Jonah, chapter 3. Well, go to Jonah, chapter 4, and we'll go back a verse. Jonah, story we're all familiar with, and I'll probably summarize a lot of this. I'll start while you're looking. The last verse of chapter 3, you know the story of Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. And God spoke to him and said, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach, tell them to get your house in order because in 40 days, seven days you're going to die. And Jonah got in a boat and went the opposite direction. That's the story. Jonah got on the boat. The storm came up and it becomes clear that Jonah's rebelling against God. So they throw him overboard. A great fish swallows him up. And that fish was God's protection in the water, but it was a protection that was designed to make Jonah decide he didn't want to stay there. And then this fish throws him up onto the sea, onto the, once Jonah changes his mind, and then Jonah goes into the city, preaches this message, and then goes out on the outside of the hill, hill on the outside of the city to watch what's happened. Now God's message was, in seven days you're going to die. He didn't say anything about, if you get things right, I'm going to forgive you. What happens is that the king of Nineveh. Nineveh, by the way, was the most evil city probably in the world at that time. They were brutal. They slaughtered children as a sacrifice. I don't want to begin to tell you some of the things that they did. So they were hated by the Jews. They were hated by people because they were cruel. They were mean, completely ungodly, beyond what you and I can begin to imagine. And the king of Nineveh holds a fast and says, let's pray and seek maybe this God, maybe this God will show mercy to us. And this is where we're going to end. The last verse of chapter 3, God does. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster that he said would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. That sounds like the older brother, doesn't it? These people are evil. I mean, they're evil right down to their core. And God's going to forgive them? Just because they've repented and said they're changing? And Jonah's angry. He's angry. This is, if you look, study carefully, this is why he didn't go to Nineveh. This is why he disobeyed God. He was afraid that if they repented, God would forgive them. So he didn't want to even give them the opportunity to hear the word. Because they didn't deserve to to be saved. They didn't deserve it. So I'm not even going to tell them because God might decide to forgive them. Woo! And so when all that happens, his worst nightmare came true. Jonah's angry. Let's see how God deals with him. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said to you when I was still in my country? See, that's why he didn't want to go. He said, Didn't I tell you that you might forgive them? 
Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounded in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Now therefore, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to to die than to live. It's a good thing God doesn't treat Jonah the way Jonah wouldn't treat them. Some of you may have cried that at some point, and God didn't listen to you either. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and pouted. doesn't say that, but that's literally what he was doing. There he made himself a shelter and sat under the, in the shade and t- that he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord prepared a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his mer- misery. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and it damaged the plant so that it withered. And it happened that when the sun arose, God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, that he wished death for himself. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And, he, and Jonah's answer is, it is right for me to be angry with the plant, even unto death. But the Lord said, this is the key. You've had pity on this plant for which you've not labored nor made it grow, when it came up at night and it perished in a day. Should not I have pity on Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left or good and evil and their livestock? Jonah was a prophet. He was a man of God. But he developed this attitude in his heart that there were people that didn't deserve God's mercy. Now listen carefully what I just said. It got into his heart that there are people, and especially the Ninevites, that did not deserve God's mercy. But what is mercy? Isn't mercy when you don't get what you deserve? or you get what you didn't deserve. Throughout this whole story, there's one consistent person that's disobedient, that's speaking out, I'd rather die than go through this. And God didn't give him what he deserved, did he? God gave mercy to Jonah. In fact, Jonah was a prophet because of God's mercy. Jonah breathed every breath he breathed because of God's mercy. Every beat of his heart was God's mercy. His life was God's mercy. Everything he ate came from God's mercy. And this little plant that grew up that he became very fond of, that was given to him as the mercy of God. And he's, he does, he's lost touch with the heart of God. And Jonah has substituted himself as the judge. This is what James says in chapter 4. He says, when you judge other people, you've taken yourself and made yourself the law giver. Because only the giver of the law has the right to judge whether somebody's kept it or not. Jonah was putting himself in God's place without God's heart. And he was judging this city because of what, how he saw they were, but he wasn't looking at them through the heart of God. Because remember why Jesus came, to seek and to save that was lost. 
God says about them, if you care so much for this little plant that grew up and was here today and gone tomorrow, and you cared so much that you were upset that it died, shouldn't I be more upset and care more for over 100,000 people in this city who don't know their left hand from their right, who can't have sense of right or wrong. They don't understand the choice yet. And when you came and spoke the word to them, they knew there was a choice. When you came and spoke the truth to them that I told you to speak, they knew there was a choice. And they chose to call upon me for mercy. And you wanted to give them judgment. But God's heart, if God wanted to, if God, like the Psalm say though, if God were to judge us based on who we are, we're all grease. Because fire is going to come down out of heaven and consume every one of us. So the fact that if you're not in Christ yet, the fact that you're still alive and still have an opportunity is His mercy. For those that are in Christ, that are, in, that are, that are Christians, we're in here because of His mercy. What happens is we can be in it, in Christ so long, we forget that what brought us, everything, this is, everything was through the cross. In the tabernacle, in the wilderness, when the priests would come into the first room and they would eat the showbread, which represented fellowship with God and communing with God, they would bring in from the altar, the brazen altar outside where the fire was burning every day, 24 hours a day, which represents the cross. They'd take a coal from that fire and they would bring it in and put it in the altar of incense, which was a, and put a sweet, uh, uh, they would put a compound on it that when it was burned would put off this beautiful aroma, which represents prayer and worship. But they used a coal that came from that hot inferno where the carcasses of animals were burned. And what that recognizes is as we get close to God, as we come into the presence of God, as we worship God, as we walk with God, we can't ever forget that the energy, the life that allows the burn within us to give off that aroma to God, to give off those prayers to God, to give off that word, comes from off of the cross, the fire of the suffering of the cross can't ever forget that. And as I was praying about this this morning, I suddenly saw something I never saw. And all the time I've taught the tabernacle, the book they've written, everything, that they carried that censer with that altar in front of them when they walked in. It was always in front of them that their right to come into that place was because of what was done out in that altar out there. And our right to come into God's presence, our right to pray, our right to be heard, our right to come and worship God, our right to call ourselves children of God, our right to do that is only, is only, is only, is only because of the cross. It's only because of the cross. It's only because of the cross. It's only because of the cross. And the moment we forget that, other things get in our hearts. Pride, judgment. And those are dangerous because the more they get in us, the more clearly we see what's wrong and yet we're completely off because we're not seeing through God's heart. We're not seeing with God's method. God's motive. We're not seeing with God's purposes. And we're no longer serving Him's His purposes. The head of the church came to seek and to save the lost. The down and outers, the up and the successful ones. Not to call fire down on them, but to seek and to save them.
how can the body of Christ be any different? Let's pray. Father, we come to you today to your word that searches our hearts. You've told us to guard our hearts with all diligence for out of it come the issues of life. And Lord, over the course of walking with you and, and dealing with our own flesh and the, and the things around us, often other things get sown into our hearts. And we begin to think that we know what's right and wrong. And we begin to think that we're speaking for you and doing things for you. And yet we've let in our hearts seeds that have grown up that are not from you. Today, as we've looked in your word, we've seen what is important to you. We've seen the motive of your heart and why Jesus came and why he died was to seek and to save the lost and such were we at one point. Search our hearts this morning. Search our hearts this morning and reveal in us any attitudes, any, any, any preconceived ideas, anything that's not pleasing to you that doesn't line up with your heart and your motive. That our hearts be made pure in your eyes, not in our eyes, not in our brother's and sister's eyes, in your eyes. That our hearts may be made pure before you so that you can release the power of your spirit to carry out your purposes through us in this last day. For that we thank you in Jesus' name.